The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? I'm glad to have you listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. We have a huge collection of interviews going back 16 years and counting. New interviews, old interviews, different interviews, all types of topics. It's all here. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. I am going to be playing an interview from the archives with someone who has always been very nice to me. Vinny Favalli is his name. Now, that name might be familiar to a lot of you who are fans of Howard Stern or perhaps of The Late Show with David Letterman. You know, it was Shakespeare once who said, The earth has music for those who listen. Well, Vinny Favalli is someone who has heard the music of life and loss. As you're going to hear in this conversation, he is a guy with a lot of diverse interests. A Brooklyn boy, Vinny Favalli has always loved music, and he began his career in radio at WNBC. His path first crossed with David Letterman, who in years to come would become known as one of the biggest stars in television. Many years later, his path would cross with Letterman again. In 1996, he joined CBS as the vice president of late-night programming. He produced over 50 editions of the Live on Letterman concert series with everyone from Paul McCartney to Pearl Jam or the Foo Fighters. I used to love watching those. He has been a guest on Howard Stern many times, and it would appear that all of this would mean a lifetime of stories. True, but what gets Vinnie Favalli especially passionate is his musical Hereafter. Favalli is the book writer, lyricist, and composer for Hereafter, a musical that explores the question of what happens after we leave the world of the living. It was written with his creative partner, Frankie Keene, and Favalli hopes to bring closure to all who have lost someone. Audiences of Hereafter have left the theater in tears, but not tears of sorrow, tears of relief. It's also been made into a movie, which is coming at some point. You can check out hereaftermusical.com. And I hope you all enjoy the interview with Vinny Favalli. He's a great guy, and I hope you let me know what you think. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is a music, lyric, and book writer of the musical stage. Vinny Favalli is also the CBS Vice President of Late Night Programming, He's produced over 50 editions of the Live on Letterman concert series. He's been regularly heard on Howard Stern's radio program, and he seems to be a very busy man. (laughs) (laughs) Not too busy for you. Well, I appreciate it a lot. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I am doing great. It's an exciting time in late night. We're all, I mean, it's exciting and bittersweet as Dave winds down his show, but it's the best show on TV, and I'm lucky to say that I work there. Wow. Well, I kind of want to go back a little bit. Where are you from, and what was life like growing up? Boy, that's a broad question. I like that. I am from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, specifically, and I actually grew up in a really really cool block, right down the block from where I grew up, 
John Travolta did his famous walk at the beginning of Saturday Night Fever. And one of the most famous chase scenes in movie history was also filmed on the same street from The French Connection. I grew up in a cool area at a place that, that could claim disco was born, and it died there. But it was great. I love growing up in Brooklyn. You know, I have found that people from Brooklyn are always the best interviews. Oh, really? I have. I'm not just saying that. I've never met someone from Brooklyn who is afraid to talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, I, I'm proud to say that, and I'm very low on the list if I even make the list, but Brooklyn has a, a long list of people in entertainment that could claim that they're from Brooklyn, including Mel Brooks who also crosses the world of television comedy and live musical theater. Yes, and Bensonhurst, also home of Larry King. Oh, yes. Oh, well, we don't talk about that too much, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> well, you just mentioned music uh, a second ago. What kind of music did you grow up listening to? I'm fortunate. I guess every generation has their own like bragging rights, but I'm really lucky in two respects. I was born in 1959, so when I, you know, I think that was like a golden time of music. My passion for music is goes back to the do. I, mean, I, I love Sinatra era music and jazz, early jazz and big band and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I really grew up because. I was born in 59, I had an older brother who was born in 1950, so by the time I was like nine years old, it was like 1968, I was well aware of the music that was happening because of my older brothers, but they were also turning me on to the music that they loved, which was a lot of that do-up stuff. And there was a great radio station in New York. It's still here, but it's a different format called CBS FM. And when I was growing up, it was a golden oldies. And in the early 70s, the, you know, early, in the 50s, were, 50s music was being played a lot. So it's a well-rounded musical background. Ironically, though, not a lot of Broadway. I was not a lot exposed to a lot of Broadway music or big Broadway shows till much later in life. Tell me about that. You said later in life was when you kind of got exposed to that. Did you? Yeah, I don't know what it was. You know, maybe because I was busy, maybe because I'm the classic New Yorker that wasn't taking advantage of what was going on. When I was coming of age, if you will, it was the punk rock scene. So if I was going into the city, I was going to CBGBs or the Ritz and, and experiencing that kind of music and not really. Like when I think about, like, I, I worked as a messenger on Broadway, in the Broadway area, when I was like 16 years old, you know, 15, 16, and I can kick myself now, like I could have seen a chorus line, you know, I could have seen the original version of Grease. They were all playing on Broadway. I remember vividly seeing them, not really understanding, you know, I grew up, my parents from Italy, so I'm first generation, and we weren't exactly a theater-going crowd, you know, so the only kind of little glimpse I had of musical theater was from the Ed Sullivan show from, you know, seeing Robert Goulet sing something from Camelot. And at the time, it didn't appeal to me. My, my tastes weren't mature enough to appreciate what was going on. There really wasn't a place for me to enjoy musical theater till I think, like, the 1980. I am lucky that I could say I saw the original production of Nine, which I think might have been my first show, which to me is still my favorite musical of all time partially because it's based on my favorite movie of all time, Eight and a Half. But once I saw Nine, I was like, it was the perfect way to kind of get into musical theater because I was really familiar with the story and the music is beautiful. It's one of my favorite 
is from my favorite soundtrack as well. And that got the ball going. And then I saw really musicals, mostly musicals. All the big shows as they came out, I would I would see and enjoy them. Never thinking I would even be writing a musical down the line. But I did come to it late, but I very much love it now. What are the lyricists and composers that you would say have made the biggest influence on you? Well, I got to go with, it's not musical theater, but Lennon and McCartney, Brian Wilson, lyrics that are actually simple, but very, very powerful. They tell a story, you know, you listen to the, the Beatles, She's Leaving Home, and it's a simple lyric, but it's so powerful because the characters are so three-dimensional. You, you, you kind of, they paint the picture so beautifully. And when I was writing Hereafter, which I should add that I co-wrote Hereafter musical with my writing partner, Frankie Keene. She's also in the show. But while working on, on the lyrics, I was really kind of drawn from what I learned from the Beatles, from Lennon and McCartney, these characters that they had written. You know, we had these characters that we were writing songs for, not ourselves. You know, it wasn't really my story, it was this fictional person who might have elements of me in it, elements of Frankie in it, and then just totally fictitious. So, I mean, this is really, my influence is from rock and roll. I guess I should say Sondheim, who I, but I got to him much later, later, and I'm still learning and understanding and discovering his genius. But when you look, when you hear the lyrics for Gypsy, that's probably my second favorite musical. The lyrics from that show are amazing. And West Side Story. What was the initial inspiration behind Hereafter? It was when I read about in the newspaper, in the local newspaper, the tragic death of a 19-year-old neighbor. I didn't know him or the family at the time. read about this car accident that he had. He was with three other friends driving. He was a passenger. They all walked away. He unfortunately died, and it was in the neighborhood, and it was tragic. And I remember like thinking, oh, God, at such a young age. And then I was, I, when I read the article, it said that he left behind two sisters, mother and father, and I, I felt horrible for everyone, but the sisters really stood out for me because I lost my siblings. I lost an older and younger brother and over a three-year period when I was like 16. So it just rekindled a lot of stuff. So I thought, hey, let's write a musical. No, I drove by the, the crash site the next day just on my way to take my son to soccer practice, and I noticed a memorial tree with the roses. I was like, oh, this is so tragic and sad. And I kept on riding by it every week, taking my son. You know, life goes on. You're on a busy highway, and you ha it's very like jarring to see that. You pause, and you see his picture up there, and it's just started me thinking about, like, see how we handle the loss of a loved one, how we deal with that, and I wrote a song. I wrote a song called 19, from the point of view of the, the young man who died. I really kind of wrote it about me, like, gee, I wish, what would it be great if we could just come back and tell people that are mourning us that not to really stop living, to go on with your life, and we'll be together again. And even though I died so young, I still did a lot in life. So it just got me thinking about, like, oh, okay, let me just, it was an exercise. And I wrote the song, and the song came out fantastic, and thanks to some very good, talented friends, Pat Barry, Eric Garner, they helped turn that song into an amazing demo. And then I wasn't intending to write a show or that it was for a musical, but I was like, boy, this song is powerful, but what am I going to do with it? You know, it's like, who's going to want a song about 
a kid who died at 19. And then it, it just, you know, it hit me soon after because I was obsessed about it and I realized, you know what, the only place a song like this could live is in musical theater. You, you can get away with stuff like that, with that kind of subject matter. And so... I wasn't going to write a show, but I was like, okay, well, I could live there somewhere, but good luck, because I'm not going to write a musical. That was way beyond my grasp. And, and then, but, you know, I was just I'm obsessed on it, and then I just said, well, what would the show be where a song like this could live? And then this is kind of the life that I lived. It was like, oh, I don't worry. It could live. Maybe the kid's mother goes to see a psychic to try to contact him. I've been to psychics over the years with my wife. And then I looked at my, you know, my wife's story of having lost her mother when we first got married and our journey that we went going to see psychics and being disappointed every time. And I said, you know, maybe there's a story about a woman, three women, who go to see a psychic to connect. And they don't know each other, but they, they bond in one afternoon. And I made one of the characters was based on my wife, you know, loss of, of mother. This, the other characters is, the character is a mother whose son died 30 years ago. So it's kind of like my mom's story and kind of filtered through that. And then we had a third woman who was a deeply religious woman whose daughter committed suicide. And, you know, so that's kind of what we started out with and didn't write it, but that was just very broad. And then it was like literally almost like someone could have designed a computer program to spit out on paper in very broad strokes or what this musical would be. So if you had a musical about people searching for the answer to what happens when you die, song titles would be songs like Rest in Peace and Take My Life and Life and Death. Almost all cliches, I'm embarrassed to say. So I just was kind of specking them out, and then I met Frankie through just divine intervention. We, we I was looking for some singers just to kind of work on some demos. I had done some demos, and they came out good, but it was a lot of work to do it on my own. And Frankie came in, and she responded to the material in such a powerful way. She had lost siblings when she was younger, and her mom when she was very young. So it became apparent to me that you know I. I wasn't hiring an actress, but I was actually hiring someone who turned out to be a very good friend, but a, a partner on the show, a writing partner. And together, we wrote the show. It was, it was an amazing process. That was in 2008. And then we workshopped it. We did readings, and the story evolved over a couple of years. We did the traditional readings, and then we did aged reading, which was pretty incredible. And we learned a lot. Every time we did it, we learned new things about the show. The script started telling us what to do. You know, it's like, oh, certain songs. I'm sure you're familiar with trunk songs. There were a bunch of songs that didn't fit anymore. You know, so we had to chuck them and write new songs. And they're great songs. They're on the CD. I, I sent you the MP3s. They're not in the show, but they're great songs. We had to rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. And then one year we said, you know, this is the year we got to do something with this. We either got to like stop or take it to the next level to see if we have a, a viable show here, like a story, because we had never performed it in front of a paying audience or even just a large audience with production value, with the lighting and the, and the costume and all that. So it was the early days of Kickstarter. We said, you know, let's try this thing. And shockingly, we raised $70,000. Wow. Yeah, to do a full production. But not so shockingly, I'm an idiot. I thought that would be enough. <laughs> it turned out I was about $180,000 short. But we were... We were just so thrilled with the response that we that we got from that, 
and we had been building a fan base. So we said, you know what, let's just go for it. So I put a lot of money into the production. We did two weeks at Theater 80 on the Lower East Side, the East Village, and it was amazing. It was, we had a full band, great director, Terry Berliner, director, choreographer. We had an our musical director on that production, our music director is Bill Hendon, who was Frankie, like my other partner on the show, but he wasn't available for the run, so we got Lon Hoyt, who had been the music director on Hairspray on Broadway. So we were like, wow, we're like, this is this is amazing. You know, we had a great, a really great creative team. The production was fantastic, excellent reviews, great response, and then it was just a two-week run because it costs a lot of money to keep these things going. It was just really more of like, do we have something here? Turns out we did. We were thrilled. And then we were down for a while because, you know, you know, down as in on hiatus because, you know, we had to raise money again to do it again. And then we just recently finished the 16-week run of the Snapple Theater on Broadway and 50th. I mean, we're literally... Our theater is right next to the Brill Building, if you know that, which is the legendary building where most of rock and roll was written in the 60s in that building and, and the one across the street at 1650 Broadway. So we're a great location. It was an amazing run. We're on a hiatus now, and we hope to come back again in the summer. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations. I wanted to talk a little bit about about Frankie Keene. Tell me about working with her. Because of the similar losses in your life, did you feel right. there was a, a bit of meant-to-be kind of thing? Yes, yes, absolutely. It just felt like, boy, that's the person I was waiting for that needed to spark to the idea and help me take it to the next level. And what's interesting, though, is we share the same losses, but we come at it from two completely different perspectives. She has more of a faith, a lot more of a faith in God. Like I mean, I believe in God, but she really believes in God. I want my little proof, a little more proof. But she has has more hopeful look at things, and I'm a more desperate look at the idea of what happens when when we die. So we actually, we, we kind of, I think it's reflected in the script where there's the hopeful character, the cynical character, which is a combination of both of our feelings. But yeah, the connection was powerful. The fact that we both shared those losses really helped us with a shorthand while we were writing it. One of the people who is associated with Letterman, of course, the announcer, Alan Coulter. Right. The very lovable Alan Coulter. Have you interviewed Alan? I have, and I have to say, he was he was like my favorite of the guys. What a voice. What a voice, huh? Yeah, when he called, it was like, oh my gosh, that's Alan Coulter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me, did you go to him or did he go to you about being in Hereafter? Oh, no, I went to him. I went to him. I was looking for that voice. I was looking for two things. His part of the show was interesting. He really has two big impacts in the show. One is the character of Robert Weldy, who is very much like, uh, what's his name, Robert Osborne on Turner Movie Classics, the guy who introduces the movies and has that beautiful, mellifluous voice and speaks eloquently about these old movies and movie stars. So I wanted Alan for that, but I also needed almost like a voice of God, like a, like a James Earl Jones-type power to sell that beautiful poem at the top of the show which was not written by us, but is one of the most beautiful analogies, hopeful 
analogies about what happens when someone dies. So I, I, I emailed him a script. I said, Alan, would you mind just kind of reading this? And one is more of a, a voiceover, like the poem is like more like almost like a someone in church, like a pastor. And then the other one is like Robert Osborne. He sent me an email back of something he, he had done in his home studio. And it's the one I used. I've used it for like eight years now, the same tracks. They were beautiful. And when I put the music underneath it, I got goosebumps. And what about Danny Aiello? Danny, Danny's a great dear friend to Frankie and I. He, he he's so sweet and generous with his time. There was yeah, at one point the psychic in the show was in his mid to late seventies. And actually Danny Young for that, but it was was that that character. We had these beautiful songs, Talk to Me and Heart and Soul. And I, you know, I said, hey, Danny, could you sing these you know, demos for us? He goes, sing the demos. I want to be in the show. I was like, oh, my God. You know, and at that point, we were still a ways off. We were just working on the songs. He did an amazing job on the tracks. And then, like, the story changed. And the psychic was no longer like that age. He was a lot younger, you know. So we had to, Danny's such a good friend. And it was like, okay, well, I'm still singing these songs no matter what. We went into the studio and recorded the pieces. And Daddy's been great. He's come to all the performances. And it's just been a really great, great dear friend of the show over the years. When somebody goes to see Hereafter, what do you want them to get out of that experience? The freedom for one night to speak freely and share the people that they've lost in their lives with their friends. You know, it's a very difficult conversation to have. People don't want to hear it. Life goes on. They don't want to hear about your mom. I mean, it's not that they're mean about it, but, you know, it scares them. But when you sit in the theater, the Snapple Theater, and you see the show, and you're sitting in a room with 200 people that you don't know, right, except for the few people you came with, and every single person is crying, and it's audible. And they're, they're crying, but they're not sad. They're crying because they're li- living through these characters. And the ending is so powerful and hopeful without really being too Pollyannish. How everything's going to be great. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just as many questions at the end as there are in the beginning. But everyone has got this beautiful communal feeling. They're, they're crying together. They're, there's tissues that are all over the place. And I been told by many people who have seen the show after it was over, it was the most incredible post-show dinner conversation they've ever had, or they have a long time, because that night everyone was on the same page. They were all able to have that conversation about, yeah, a couple conversations, just remember the loved ones that they had lost without bringing the room down because everybody was just comparing notes, and then shifting into, so what do you think happens when... A person died. It just mm-hmm. became this awesome, awesome dinner conversation that was triggered by the show. And then the big power for us is when a lot of those people come back with someone that they feel needs to see the show. Who, a lot, in most cases, doesn't want to see the show because it sounds scary for them. It's like, trust me, you need this. That's very rewarding. What is your dream for hereafter now? My dream for it right now, I, you know, a lot of people would think I should say Broadway, right? But my dream for it is for it to be performed regularly 
in as many companies as possible. I don't care how small. I don't care if it's a high school production, if it's a local church group or synagogue group. I, the show is not denied. It can be really be played by any 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 company, any organization. My goal is for it to be running forever in all these incarnations. And if it ever makes it to Broadway one day, wow, that would be great. But I'm not going to hold my breath. I'll be just as happy to produce a local version. Well, that's beautiful, man. Thanks. Thank you. What do you feel now that Letterman is going to be retiring? What, When you go to work every day, what's going on in your head? I feel, I feel very sad. I feel, in some ways, it feels like a death. It feels like a passage that I'm not ready for, a saying goodbye that I don't want to do because it feels too soon, or is there ever a time where it's good to say goodbye? It's hard. I'm excited about the future. Stephen Colbert's going to be fantastic. People have no idea what they're in for. It's going to really be, I know it's going to be a great show, but right now I'm living with a loss of what we're about to lose. It's like 32 years on TV. We've been watching the show, 33 actually, since 1982. But I had the honor of being on Letterman in 1982. So there's a whole other angle that I feel like, wow, I was there at the beginning. I could say for, I had my 15 minutes of thanks. You know, I was there. I was on that show. I wish I was the guy who threw the tomahawk on the Jerry Carson show. <laughs> but it wasn't, the clip is not that memorable. But I was there. I could say I was there. And I'm going to be there at the end. And it's going to be... The thing about hereafter, one of the things I love about the word hereafter, it literally means from this moment on. It's a legal term, right? When you see it in a contract. You know, worldwide pants, hereafter referred to as WWP, for example. And it truly is when someone dies or any kind of significant change in a person's life, good or bad, whether you get married or divorced or you know, a death in the family or David Letterman retiring, from that moment on, things are going to be different. Sometimes they're going to be better. Sometimes they're going to be not better, sadder. It's a major hereafter moment coming on May 20th when Dave goes off the air. What is the best thing about being Vinny? Haven't figured that out yet. I, I know my poor wife is exhausted living with being Vinny. She's awesome, by the way. I couldn't do, I couldn't accomplish anything without her. I don't know. I think my look, my outlook on life is one of, we are very, very lucky to be here. And a day when no one dies is an awesome day. Everything else is like, I couldn't care less if it was five hour traffic jam, if the heater blew up and it costs $3,000 to fix. It's actually, if that's the worst thing that happened, that's a great day. What would you like to say to anyone who's listening in, wherever they are? Oh, my goodness. First of all, I love your website and everything that you do, and I'm honored to be that you've taken the time to talk to me. I would just I encourage people to just, you know, follow me on Twitter. I, I do some really good retweets. <laughs> I go to hereaftermusical.com, the VP Favali on Twitter. Just, you know, let's be in touch. I'd love to meet everyone in any capacity say hi on the street if you recognize me i i don't think you would but i don't know i i just you know i love people so stay in touch folks my last question who is vinnie favali he is hopefully middle-aged middle-aged man which means he's gonna live to 105 if i'm in the middle of my my my, my total age you know, i don't know i think that's best for other people to say I think he's a really cool guy. Great dad, great husband, great friend.
But that's just me talking. That's the liquor talking. I, you know, <laughs> I can't. I, you can't go by me. <laughs> well, Vinny, thank you very much for this. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. And have a good oh, night. Man. You too. Take care. Thank you so much. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep, bop, doodly, shop, bop, ding, a daka. Ooh, no. I just get up with it like a pom, pom, cook it to be. I said, like, bop, I don't fucking talk, pom, pom, to goodle, the goodle, bop, boodle, boom. Goodbye.